This is Packer and Durham on ACCN and Sirius XM Channel 371. Uh, in case you missed uh, Blake James, he's the new director of athletics at Boston College. He joined us last mm-hmm. week. We'll give you that replay. And uh, we do appreciate Joe Zagaki and Joe Giglio who joined us to highlight both Miami and NC State, respectively, two teams that I think you're going to see a lot of national love, not only within the league, but also big picture. A lot of folks loving about Miami. Same thing with NC State, two dynamic quarterbacks, a lot of experience back. But those teams should be very, very good in 22. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Pac. And uh, we're also chronicling the story of Notre Dame out in Omaha at the College World Series. The Irish got off to a great start on Friday night, defeating Texas and fell last night to Oklahoma. So they'll play Texas A&M tomorrow afternoon in an elimination game. And now they're down to the fact of if you lose in this pool or if you lose in this portion of the bracket play, you're done. And the Longhorns were done yesterday. A&M beat them, I think, 11-2 to was the final. And so we end up with a loser's game tomorrow with Notre Dame and, uh, and Texas A&M at 2 o'clock on ESPN. But it goes back to what you were talking about last week, Mark. That is the difficulty of trying to win the College World Series. And the ACC has been to this doorstep so many times and gotten to the either the championship series where you win two out of three or the last game of the double elimination bracket, whatever the case may be. And at the end of the day, it is still an entirely different event than Super Regionals, the first round that you get two weeks ago, that kind of thing. And nothing brings it home more than to see the first, what, three days of the College World Series and today being day four just really brings into kind of focus how difficult it is to win baseball's national championship. Well, it's certainly been that way for the ACC, right? We gave you that graphic, uh, I think, on Friday's show. I brought this up during the week. Uh, The Atlantic Coast Conference, what, 55 College World Series appearances, two national titles, two. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a startling yeah. number. This is a really, really good baseball league. And getting to Omaha hasn't been the problem. Closing the door in Omaha has certainly been an issue. But, hey, Notre Dame's not done yet, right? And let's keep in mind, they took the best team in the history of college baseball, according to some, and they lost game two to Tennessee. Got smoked. Got dominated. And you know what they did? They bounced back and eliminated mm-hmm. the Vols the very next day on the road. So, Last night, you tip your hat to Oklahoma. They pitched better. They hit better. Defended better. They deserved to win the game. And uh, unlike some, uh, you actually saw what the final score was and went, yep, Oklahoma won the game. Uh, And the Sooners in a good spot, Wes, at 2-0 in the winner's bracket. But Notre Dame's still alive and kicking. And uh, they get a Texas A&M team that obviously emotionally has to be fired up after eliminating Texas, their arch rival. And for the Irish, they just got to get back to doing what they do best. And that's playing good defense, pitching, and finally start hitting the baseball. They, that was an issue last night. I mean, it struck out 14 times and just really seemed out of sync from the very get-go. Yeah, they sure did. And uh, give Kate Horton, this young man at Oklahoma, a lot of credit. Uh, got after it. And Skip Johnson's got a nice team, right? I mean, you mentioned in the first hour, they go to Gainesville and win that regional uh, then they get uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, they entered the Supers with the worst ERA among the 16 teams. And quite frankly, since they set, they set on the ground in Blacksburg, Oklahoma's been pitching it. They had one little wobble in Blacksburg where they got into a slugfest. But beyond that, Oklahoma's been pretty, pretty, pretty thrifty in terms of allowing runs in college baseball. 
Well, Virginia Tech, we know how they can rake and they can hit. They're awfully good yeah. at home. And they gave up, what, two hits in the game deciding, the series deciding game. And so they, they're on a roll. Yeah. You got to get hot at the right time. But hey, nobody, uh, let me emphasize, nobody has had a better run than Notre Dame as far as, hey, on the road, they should have been hosting, got hosed by the committee, no problem. They took it on the road, won. They have to go beat the number one team on the planet Earth in Tennessee. They did that. The Vols were, what, 37 and three at home all year. Irish took two or three. So, right. you know, yeah, last night wasn't great. But it wasn't one of those deals where, hey, you've got to go sit on the couch. Tomorrow afternoon, though, you got to be ready to go. I expect Notre Dame to bounce back and play much better tomorrow afternoon. Yeah, likewise. And uh, it'll be interesting to see now, after playing last night, how does Link Jarrett kind of work his pitching around? You certainly think you can probably see Finley tomorrow uh, in, in some prominent role if you need to. You know, Find out kind of where they are. And uh, the Irish will have a chance, but uh, Texas A&M is the one staring them here in a 2 o'clock game tomorrow. And you see Oklahoma now gets to hang around. And then you got to beat the Sooners twice. Once you lose in this format, you have to play at least one more game than the team that is 2-0. At least one more. Sometimes it takes more than that, but we'll see what happens. So, uh, But uh, nonetheless – that comes back to the conversation we were having a moment ago. This thing is tough to win back. Ali, even on the other side where we've got, what, Arkansas and Ole Miss sitting in a 1-0 game tonight. Uh, I mean, Ole Miss looked lights out the other night pitching. Their pitching numbers are ridiculous. And you're thinking, okay, well, here's the game to get to 2-0, 2-0. You get to that. I mean, Ole Miss and Oklahoma would appear, if Ole Miss wins tonight and Arkansas has got a great team, we have no idea. I mean, you look at the pitching both those schools have put in play here, I'd say either one be hard to beat if uh, if Ole Miss wins tonight. And I'm not even – Arkansas has got good pitching too. But Ole Miss, now that's a whole different deal. I believe Ole Miss is the only team still left standing that has yet to lose an NCAA baseball tournament game. Didn't lose one in the regional, didn't lose one in the super regional, haven't lost one in Omaha. So they're playing with a ton of momentum. But I go back to one of the things I was kidding around with last week, that the quote-unquote experts, Texas is the favorite. And you're like, well, how could anybody be the favorite in this thing? And Texas was two in barbecue, never won a game. And now you look at the, you know, who's left – only two of the eight national seeds made it to Omaha. Uh, one's A&M, mm-hmm. right? And, of course, they've already had a stub-your-toe moment when uh, Oklahoma pounded them in game one. The other one is the number two national seed in Stanford, and Arkansas beat them by 100 in the game on Saturday. Right. So, I, you know, take it for whatever it's worth, man. It, it is hard to win. Uh, so, again, we'll see what happens. It's kind of the SEC version of the games today and tonight with three teams of the four remaining in the other bracket. But from our perspective, it's all about Notre Dame and A&M tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock. But uh, who's the favorite, yeah. Russ? I don't think there is a favorite. You know, it's a team who can get hot, who can stay hot, who can rest their arms. That is the advantage of going 2-0 and in terms of your start. You get to rest and kind of reset your lineup, your pitching staff. You get a day off. Mm-hmm. No stress on anybody the day before. You watch all these loser-leave-town match games like the A&M and Notre Dame game and what you're going to get today with Auburn and Stanford. So the tournament's great. The setting's great. And if you love college baseball, it does not get better than Omaha.
All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you this stat. We ran it in hour one, and I'll just say this. I'll tell you who the favorites are. The favorites are the two teams that are 2-0. and Why is that? Because we ran this graphic earlier in the, in the show today, in hour one. You get to 2-0, and you know, the, the proverbial driver's seat situation, you're in the driver's seat. I mean, more often than not. Look, 26 of the last 31 have been won by teams that started 2-0. and that's a pretty thick percentage of success. So Oklahoma's 2-0, and and either uh, Arkansas or Ole Miss go to 2-0 and tonight. I would say from that point forward, you got to feel pretty good about where you are. Yeah, you do, but you still got to close, right? How often have we talked no about question. that, whether we're talking about the Supers or just the regular regionals? And, you know, how many times have we talked about an ACC team with the lead, 7th, 8th, ninth inning in some of these uh, matchups right. did not close? It's... We watched it yesterday in the U.S. Open. I mean, hey, you've got to close. Joe Giglio, 2016 mm-hmm. NC State. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. You got to close, <laughs> man. That's It's the hardest thing in sports is when you've got it right where you want it and can you get it done. And that has been a problem yep. for our conference in Omaha. 55 College World Series appearances, only two national titles. You got to be able to close. But the good news, like I said, is that Notre Dame's not done and this team has bounced back. They played great all season long. Uh, they got a ton of experience. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I expect them to play better tomorrow afternoon against a really good A&M team. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. And it's a 2 o'clock game on uh, ESPN. Don't forget post-game coverage on uh, ACC Network with Kelsey Riggs, uh, Danny Graves, and Mike Rooney, <clears throat> who are out in Omaha covering it for us here at ACC uh, Network. Um, still more to come on this program. Uh, David Hale, who was at the Name, Image, and Likeness Summit coming up bottom of the hour. Uh, but I tell you, Pac, in a moment, our, our visit with Blake James last week, and I'm genuinely excited to see Blake James back in the ACC as an athletic director. I thought he did a really nice job at Miami. It didn't end well. Often it doesn't. But at the same time, this guy's experience level and this kind of fit seems really, really good for the ACC and certainly for Boston College. 100% agree. And given his northeastern roots, it's an easy trip from Maine uh, back to Chestnut Hill, if you will. And I know he said he starts July 1st, but he's already working in terms of making that transition seamless. I thought it was a really, really good, smart hire by Boston College. All right. So on the other side, when we continue this Monday edition of Packer and Durham, we will go to Chestnut Hill and talk to the athletics director at Boston College. Blake James, in case you missed it from last week, is next on the Atlantic Coast Conference Television Network. The Packer and Durham Podcast. This is the Packer and Durham Podcast. Durham on a Monday, 844-SAY-ACCN. David Hale comes up here in about 13 minutes to be exact, give or take. Be some uh, really good opportunity for us to talk about your beet juice endorsement, your name, image, and likeness with beet juice, don't you think? Devin Leary, I don't know how he does it, man. I don't know how Devin Leary swallows that hole before he goes out there and just throws touchdown passes all night long, but he says he does. Unbelievable. (laughs) Stuff is nasty. So you didn't you didn't hit one of those over the weekend? Kind of no. keep your uh, momentum going? No, 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 no. That's stuff. I'm telling you, it, the taste actually wasn't as bad as the smell. The odor, the aroma of beet juice is just brutal. 
So I would. That's wish your that, first mistake. I wouldn't wish that on a dog. Your first mistake was smelling it. Well, I mean, yeah. you, you know, your, I've your never first had mistake it. was smelling it. By it's the way, the first thing yeah. I'm always going to do. I mean, if somebody hands me something new, the first thing I'm going to do is smell it. But I wouldn't give that to a dog. All right, that's how bad that stuff is. <laughs> Brutal. Hey, um, you, you and I have talked about this uh, really since we started the program on radio, the old ACC Central show, which was what now cumulative over a thousand shows, right? One thousand nineteen. Um, 1019. Okay. My birthday, actually. There you go. 1019. Yeah, there you have it. The um, of athletic director leadership at each of these institutions, right? And about a year and a half ago during the pandemic and COVID and all the things that they were having to navigate, Blake James was in the room. In fact, I remember talking to Blake James one day about the leadership and the collaboration that was taking place in order to get us on the field for the 2020 season. Remember that? And it was a fascinating conversation that day. Well, Blake James, of course, it didn't end well at Miami last fall, but now he's back at Boston College. And we started our visit last week, in case you missed it, by talking about the natural fit, the thing Mark and I just talked about a moment ago, a guy from the Northeast with now the leadership of athletics at one of the Northeast pinnacle institutions. It really did for me, and I, and I believe it did for, for them based on the conversations and obviously the fact that I'm sitting here today. Uh, from the first uh, moment that I heard the possibility that this job may be there, I started doing everything I could to uh, get my information out there, uh, get it to the right people here in, in, Chapel, uh, in Chestnut Hill, and, uh, uh, and it's uh, something that I'm excited to uh, be a part of the BC family. It was interesting to hear you talk about stability in your presser because, look, we know how it is in the coaching world, and I think sometimes it can become that in the administrative side too. If people come and do a really good job, there are going to be opportunities presented to them. Martin Jarman, Pat Kraft are both examples of that. However, it feels like that you and B.C., we're both committed to the stability factor of this. And it was important, I think, to Father Leahy based on those comments and really important to you to create that stability. So there was a connection there, it, it seems like, too. It, it, there really was. And, and again, I think that goes back to what we you know, started this conversation. It was a win-win. Uh, this was the perfect opportunity for, for me and my family. Uh, you know, Kelly and I uh, are thrilled to be able to be here in, in Boston. We've, we've lived a number of years in New England, never actually in Boston, and now have the opportunity to be here. As, as you both know, this is such a great city. Uh, we're out uh, uh, looking for houses right now. Kelly's excited to, to get here. I'm excited to, to be here. Technically, I'm not starting until July 1, but uh, I've been uh, all in since uh, last uh, Thursday, and uh, I'm just excited to uh, really continue to elevate this program. They've done some amazing things here. I hadn't had a chance to really be on campus uh, and see what had been done since, you know, really honestly back in my days at Maine. So probably 2010 was the last time I was really here and had a chance to look at campus and to see uh, what Father Leahy and, the, and all those that uh, care so much about this program have really done to elevate this program. I'm excited to grab the baton and uh, uh, run this race and uh, bring this program to even uh, greater success. Blake, with that said, and again, this may be a bit premature, but I'm sure you've done your due diligence and kind of, hey, I'm ready to get going. I know July 1 is the go time, but it's really already go time. Uh, So what is the next level for Boston College in your seat? 
Well, I think there's a, a number of things, and I'll learn more in, in the coming months and years in terms of what we need to do. But again, as you guys know, the, the bar is always being raised in terms of, of what we're doing to create the best student experience possible. Uh, obviously, Boston College is an incredible institution that has got outstanding graduation rates, and, and a degree from BC means so much in terms of uh, what it's going to do for that young person's life after they leave us, whether that's to go play in the league of whatever their sport is, uh, or to go in that passion of their career uh, professionally whatever that might be. And so I think it's going to be continuing to look at what we're doing on the facility front, continuing to do what we can to create the best student-athlete experience. And then I, I have a great group of coaches here in, in terms of you know the ones I've met and what I've been able to see. And so for me, it's it's mentoring those coaches, helping them along the way. And then as you know, it, a lot of times it's, it's making sure that uh, the, we're keeping the right ones here and that we can continue to grow our program. Blake, I've often told people that like coaching, athletic directors have gained experience wherever they go. Uh, no matter the role they play, as the ladder moves, so does the experience notion. Uh, you mentioned timing and the win-win and things like that. And then you mentioned coaches. Jeff Halfley, Earl Grant, Acacia Walker-Weinstein. I mean, Joanna Barnaby-McNamee. I mean, there's just so many different levels of coaching that have impacted where BC's going here. Um Take me through the, the when you dig down in this job, what is it about that coaching aspect? It feels like the success levels can be achieved there. And they're doing it, as you well know, in a completely different environment. I mean, it's it's kind of similar. You're in a metropolitan market like Miami. The brand may be a little different, but it feels a lot like the experiences you had in Coral Gables could benefit you at Chestnut Hill here, too. Well, 100%. I think competing in a market like Miami and Boston is, is very similar. Obviously, you have the Celtics uh, competing for the NBA championship. Uh, again, mm -hmm. good luck to the Celts tonight in Game 5. Want to see them uh, bring back here to Boston. You know, the Red Sox, uh, that was one of the things that I was amazed at when I, when I first moved to New England back in the uh, early 2000s at Providence, just how, you know, how big the Red Sox are here, uh, the success of the Patriots, the Bruins, on down the line. And so to have that experience in Miami where you're, you're competing in a, in a similar market, I think really serves me well. Where are we when it comes to name, image, and likeness and transfer portal? I mean, has anything really changed since your days at Coral Gables? Do you get a sense there's some momentum? Do you get a sense that, hey, we're close or, hey, we're three years away from any kind of rules and regulations? What, what would crystal ball this thing for us? Where, where do you think we are, big picture? I think we're in an, an area of un, unknown right now. I think a, a lot of a lot of schools are, are trying to figure out what how this best works. Uh, I think everyone has a great appreciation for the collegiate model and, and what it's meant for uh, so many years for so many young people to be able to go and, and get their degree, play a sport they love, uh, for a small percentage, go on and make a living playing that sport that they love. Uh, but just really the overall collegiate experience and how name, image, and likeness uh, I guess, works with all that. I think everyone's still trying to figure that out. Uh, you're seeing all sorts of different things, different schools. I, I think the latest number is there's 34 states that have a law, uh, which means there's 16 of us that, that don't. Massachusetts is one of those that doesn't. And so um, I think working with the association uh, and really trying to figure out how do we b do this best, I think everyone believes uh, legitimate name, image, and likeness is, is right for, for the young people. Uh, at the same time, we have to stay away from uh, recruiting inducements and, and pay for play. And, and so again, I think those are some things that uh, we're going to have to try to figure out. And I hope to say the timeline is shorter 
than what it probably is. Uh, but it's something that I, I think we'll just continue to have these types of conversations about in uh, the coming months and years because I don't see an, an ultimate solution just right around the corner. I think there's a lot of things that have to play out, uh, especially when you have so many different state laws and so many playing by you know so many different rules. It's not that they're not similar, but there's differences to to each state's rules. Uh, again, I'm very familiar with the the Florida law. Uh, the Florida law is is different than a lot of other states, and so I think it's it's getting through all that, and then how do we collectively come to a point? Uh, where we're able to allow these uh, young people to, to capitalize on name, image, and likeness at the same time that we're able to create uh, a situation where everyone's playing by the same set of rules. Blake will do a good job at BC. Now, again, like I said, it's all Absolutely. about fits. We, we, we talk about coaches and fits, athletic directors and fits, broadcasters and fits, all that stuff. Like I said yep. earlier, Boston College did a nice job uh, replacing Pat Kraft. And we wish Pat the very best at Penn State, but uh, Blake will fit in, I think, perfectly at Boston College. Dude, I mean, can you just sense how good a fit that is and now the stability they get? Yeah. Right? I mean, yep. it just feels like that's the right thing, huh? And here's the other thing that's great about it too, Wes, is that Blake understands the league. It's not an athletic director that comes from a different part of the country that has to get a handle on, all right, what's the ACC all about? You know, who the power brokers, what moves, what shakes, the, the politics. He understands it. Been there, done that. So he can hit the mm -hmm. ground going at 200 miles an hour, which is exactly what he'll do at Chestnut Hill. Yep. So congratulations to Blake James. Look forward to future conversations with him. Uh, when we come back, maybe the most interesting piece of college athletics last week was a first-ever name, image, and likeness summit. You remember Jim Cavale, who joined us uh, from Influencer earlier uh, last year to talk about this industry? Well, last week, a bunch of student-athletes met for three days with a lot of brands and a lot of vendors. David Hale was our man on the scene. He'll talk to us next on Packer and Durham. Packer and Durham. Here's Mark Packer and Wes Durham. Durham on a Monday. I hope everybody's enjoying uh, the holiday. A lot of folks have the day off, chilling and grilling. But uh, we still have some work to do here, Mr. Durham, including our buddy David Hale, who's been busy, busy, busy. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and in my world, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the growing industry of name, image, and likeness. And to a degree, in a sense, David Hale was on the front line of it last week for three days in Atlanta at the very first NIL summit at the College Football Hall of Fame, which uh, Jim Cavale, who we had on this show about, what, 11 months ago, Pac, of, uh, of Influencer in North Carolina, was talking about where this thing might go. And David, kind of take us from Genesis here. He built this event to kind of bring everybody together, it feels like, and it looked like it worked, right? Yeah, I mean, so it's funny because I think there's there's two different sort of realities of NIL right now. There's the one that we're hearing about. It's the Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban spats and, uh, you know, Ryan Day t saying it takes $14 million to maintain his program with NIL and uh, Jordan Addison transferring and all the different stories that we're hearing. Uh, and I think those, there's reality there. But then there's this whole other side of, of NIL, which is the, the vast majority of it, uh, which is NIL as it was intended to be, I guess, which is exactly what it sounds like, it's players profiting off their name, image, and likeness. They're doing social media posts. They're doing appearances, uh, you know, signing shows and, um, 
stuff like that. Uh, at this summit, I mean, there's 500 some athletes maybe, and uh, the vast majority of them, there was big time names. Will Levis from Kentucky was there, and he might be a first round draft pick, but there was a, you know, we, we sat and had lunch with uh, women's basketball players from uh, Southern Illinois. I mean, there's there just a, a wide breadth of, of folks who were there who were making uh, revenue and money off of NIL in much different ways. It was just a, a completely different sort of narrative from the one that is in the news all the time. And I think it's really all indicative of sort of the, the chaos of NIL as it is, because there is NIL that is NIL, and then there is NIL that is kind of pay-for-play dressed up as NIL, um, and then just a million different things in between. David, what was the biggest misnomer after three days of what you thought or perceived mm. the issues with NIL, good, bad, or indifferent, versus, okay, I've gone through this now for a couple of days, I've heard testimony on every sense of the word, on, on every level. Well, what's, what was the biggest misnomer as you walked away and said, all right, I'm heading back to Charlotte, but man, I would never have guessed fill in the blank. So two things really stood out for me. One, I, I went there sort of with the question of like, what's happening with NIL and where is it going? I left with the question of what's happening with NIL and where is it going? I don't think anybody knows. Um, so I was kind of hoping for some expert uh, insight and I did get that, but none of those experts really have a fully firm handle on things either. I mean, even when you ask something as simple as like, what is normal market value for an average, say, FBS football player or D1 college basketball player, there's no information about that. People just don't know. But the bigger takeaway for me, or the one that really surprised me the most, because I'm, you know, I wake up every day and I've got 50 emails in my inbox already promoting God knows what, and a lot of them are from schools saying, hey, we just started this new NIL program and it's gonna be great. Look at all we're doing for our student athletes. It's wonderful. Uh, and then I talk to student athletes there and they're like, nope, we're getting no help from the schools. Uh, and this is, this is really, I think, the thing that probably surprised me the most because um, there's it's just such a delicate process. There's some states where schools are really forced to be hands off with NIL. There's some where there's not. There's a lot of schools that have built in this this huge NIL um, sort of structure for them to work in, but they're not really doing the right thing. So what I found is a lot of guys need help with you know marketing and stuff like that. So how to how to market yourself, how to brand yourself. They also need help with like. How do I read a contract? How do I fill out my taxes? Mm. How do I, we had, I had guys tell me that, that they're helping out teammates who didn't even have a checking account. They're getting a check in for an NIL deal and they got nowhere to put it. So um, it, it is really, for a lot of these guys, it's, it's building the infrastructure for themselves as sort of a business and they have not had a lot of help. So I think schools, probably want to help. I think there's still a lot of nervousness with compliance. Um, I think there's still a lot of underfunding within athletics departments for getting the right people in there. And I think there's just a genuine misunderstanding of what the athletes really need the most help with. All right. So we've now turned the corner to scary and fantasy, right? Some of this is fantasy land, guys making six figures comfortably, potential seven in NIL, whether it's pay for play or whatever the case may be. And then we do have the scary part, which is what you know, Pac, you and I talked about last summer, student-athletes not understanding tax implications, the financial ends of it, all of that. So we're running the gamut is what you're telling me. Now we bring in all well, and, these and, terminologies. Oh, go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say, the, the, the thing to remember, too, is like, we're running the gamut, but, but student-athletes run the gamut, right? They're a microcosm of society, and, and, and to some extent. Some of these guys that we met and gals down there are brilliant. I mean, I, I could only dream of being that uh, smart and successful when I was 18, 19, 20. But then there's a lot of other people who haven't been exposed at all. And one of the big takeaways for me, too, in going through all this is there is a huge built-in advantage for student-athletes who come from a wealthier background versus a less affluent background. If your sister's a lawyer, your dad's in, in marketing or advertising, great, you've got a real leg up. If you grew up in a single-parent household and you're the first in your family to go to college, well, you're on your own with a lot of this stuff. And it's just, again, it's, it's basic, basic things that if you're exposed to it in your daily life, you probably know about it already, or at least know enough to go and know who to ask. But that's, there's a lot of student athletes who aren't exposed to that stuff coming into college. And so they're sort of thrown to the wolves. David, um, hmm. you know, we just saw Duke hire Rachel Baker, which I thought was a brilliant move. And I think it's something we're going to see across the, I think we're going to start seeing that trend. And I think Duke was kind of ahead of the game a little bit. I'm kind of curious, all these things you're mentioning, you know, if you had a point person or an organization or something internally that that student athletes could go to to say, hey, listen, I, I got I got a new deal with Company X, and I'm going to be able to generate whatever it is. It, it would seem to me it would be in the school's best interest to have a quote unquote Rachel Baker in place, whether it be an individual sport or for an entire athletic department. Did you get a sense in those three days in Atlanta that that could be a growing trend? Because I think Duke's ahead of the curve here. Yeah, you're 100 percent right, and. Her name is one that came up a good bit as I talked to people of, hey, this, this is a smart hire. This is one that can work. Uh, problem is there's not a million of those people out there, right? I mean, Rachel mm -hmm. Baker's backstory is, is a unique one. Um, and frankly, again, there's just not a lot of NIL experts out there because I'm not sure anybody has it figured out yet. Ideally, what you need is someone who can sort of bridge the gap uh, between your student athletes and NIL. And part of that is meeting student-athletes where they are. I mean, a lot of what I heard from student-athletes there was, um, I didn't even know I had access to some to X, Y, and Z. Uh, or I didn't know how to go about doing this. So you need somebody that can be actively engaged with the athletes themselves, not just in an office and say, hey, come to me if you need something. Um, but you also need somebody who truly understands the marketplace. And, and that's both, A, the the real marketplace of NIL, which is what advertisers and companies and branding uh, opportunities are out there. And then B, the other side of NIL, which is, you know, working with collectives and, and your athletics department and, and coaches and saying like, well, do we want this guy? What's the value for here? And, and all of those things. And, and again, we don't even really know what value is. I, I was talking to uh, a couple of folks who were like, you know, the, the NCA and, and schools compliance offices are supposed to sort of flag deals that quote unquote don't pass the smell test. But nobody knows what that is because if you don't know what an athlete's uh, marketability is, you can't say like this NIL deal is out of proportion with what he should be making because we don't know. So uh, the schools that are starting to put together some of that information have a legitimate uh, competitive advantage. And so having somebody in place that, that sort of understands that marketplace and can have its uh, a sort of an info or the info of this kind of player deserves about this much or this kind of player should be in mm. this range like that. There's this sort of whole blend of of marketing, of communications, 
of uh, you know business and, and management, and somebody's got to be able to kind of do all of that. And what you're seeing at some schools is that they're just essentially bringing over a guy that used to cut up video and putting him in that role, or they're handing oh. it off to their compliance officers or their sports information people who don't, they're not qualified either. You know, Rachel's one of those uniquely qualified people. I agree, all schools should be looking for their version of her. I just don't know how many versions of her there are. I know this much. The two David, points. Here. Uh, I'll just follow up with two points. Number one, I can tell you what the value is. I can tell you the value of any player in America sitting in my basement. The value is what somebody is willing to pay them. It's that simple. And that means if company X says, hey, listen, uh, Wes Durham is a starting quarterback at school Y. That guy is going to be a Heisman. I'm going to give him a million bucks. His value is a million dollars. Now, you and I might think he's worth two cents, but if somebody's going to write him a check for a million, he's worth a million. That's the value for somebody. And the other thing, too, Wes, is we're in the wrong business, man. We, we ought to be doing yep. this work for companies. I'm telling you, there is some money to be made, in my opinion, at going to schools and setting that up for folks. Because I, I think oh, I think there's, well, I, there's a gazillion dollars to be made here, in my opinion. I'll, I'll tell you two things that, that on that. Um, one... You're 100% right, but part of sort of the competitive advantage is if you can say, like, I'm willing to pay this guy a million dollars, no other school is probably going to pay him more than 700000 so maybe yeah, I right. give him 800000 and that competitive advantage by having more information saved you $200,000 that maybe you used towards another player. So that's why I say, like, schools are sort of hoarding this information because the more that they have and the less other programs have, the better it is for them. But the other thing is, boy, there are... I, I'll use the term startups as um, a, a broad category here. There are a lot of folks who are thinking just like you, Pac, I'm getting into this business. I'm going to make some money off of this. Um, it reminded me, I, I talked to a few people, it reminds me a lot of like when ride sharing first started. Eventually, we're going to get to hmm. Uber and Lyft. But there's right now like 50 other ones out there, many of them maybe not well-funded, kind of shady, not really works properly. Um, there's a lot of those businesses in this place too. And that's one of the things that because it's new and unregulated, um, a lot of people are saying this is a boon for players. It has been very good for players, but there's real risk there for the athletes too because there's just a lot of people in the market right now who maybe are probably less qualified than the two of you guys, which I would 100% hire you on. No, no worries about that. Well, thank you. You're very kind to, uh, to consider that. I, I want to add this. We've heard the term collective way too much. Um, all collectives are, are there good ones and bad ones? Are there real ones? Are there fraudulent ones? I mean, what's the reaction by student athletes and some of these brands to the word collective? Yeah, so this is getting into some very murky waters and there are good ones. There are really good ones out there. Um, those typically are based around a few things. One, there are focused on student athlete well-being. So the whole point is to kind of create, you know, we talk about Rachel Baker, create that that's that uh, infrastructure where there is they are addressing the needs of their of their athletes. Um, two is they're sustainable. So they have a diverse and broad collection of donors who are not just donors one time, but will keep coming back and donating again. And three, they are providing a give back. So look, frankly, are there some significant deals out there that are 
dressed up as NIL but are entirely pay-for-play? Yes. And at some point, some of those payers who are be- players who are being paid are not going to live up to their salary, and boosters are going to say, what's in this for me? So there is a, a, a demand, I think, for collectives to say, well, it, set that aside. Here's what else is in it for you. You're getting time with athletes. You're getting access to you know, specialty items and things like that. That's what sort of is defining a good collective. Then there's a whole bunch of ones in the middle that are sort of okay, maybe not, probably have good intentions, but are not sustainable, uh, have people in roles that they're not qualified to do, are trying to be too much uh, with not enough support. Um, and I think they can do harm, and that's a, a concern uh, for athletes, but, but their intentions are good. And then there's the third category, which is effectively like a shell corporation in the Cayman Islands you're laundering money through. They're set up as 501c3s, (laughs) which a lot of these are. That's going to be a big, big question coming down the pike. The IRS is going to take interest in these types of places sooner than later. And uh, I always tell people, we love sports. We're involved in college football every day. We think about it a ton. IRS don't care. IRS is coming for their money, and that's all they care about. So I think there will be some legitimate litigation surrounding collectives at some point. Uh, I will be interested to see if, if the good gets washed in with the bad. Um, but again, we're, we're, you know, I, I refuse to use Wild Wild West anymore. Um, but it, it, we, are, we are definitely dealing with a pretty unregulated marketplace where there's good and there's definitely bad. David, I, I want to follow up on something. To me, uh, one thing that's not been discussed much at all, if any, in the national media, is I think there's going to be a now a new pressure on high school kids, even college kids, who get these new deals. Uh, and when you start hearing stories about some kid out of high school getting paid seven figures to go to school X, and this has been reported before, the pressure on that kid, and let me emphasize the word kid, in front of 100,000 people in a football game is to be, hey, you're mm. supposed to be Tom Brady yesterday. And that's not realistic. I, I, I am really concerned about what some of these guys and girls are going to make based on the expectations that, hey, we paid you a lot of money to be the face of fill in the blank. And you know what? You're not playing well. And I don't care if it's field hockey. I don't care if it's football or anything in between. There, you know, we talked about the mental aspect for college athletics, student athletes, what they've been through after going through COVID, all the, 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 the social media stuff that happens. And now you throw this on top of it. I think we're going down a really slippery slope. And I am pro NIL. But when you start talking about the mm-hmm. amount of money that some of these student athletes are going to receive and good for them, the pressure to perform is going to get magnified times 50-fold. And I really am worried about all of a sudden that kid coming out of high school that all of a sudden can take care of his family because he's gotten paid seven figures, but he can't play dead in a cowboy movie on game day. What happens to him? (laughs) Seriously, what happens to that sponsorship? All of a sudden the guy goes, hey, I'm the ego trip booster guy that just gave uh, West Durham Jr., uh, you know, $1.5 million to go to school X, and he can't play. Screw this guy. And you know they're going to take that away from him in two seconds, and all of a sudden you're going to have the mental aspect of this. I, I don't even think we've scratched the surface in terms of having real conversations about how in the world do you handle that problem. Was that discussed at all? In Atlanta? And I'm just curious. Yeah, and you're 100% right in this. I think – it goes to show sort of the two avenues of NIL too, because if you're getting 
NIL money truly for your name, image, and likeness and not your performance on the field, that's sort of a, a non-issue, right? Like if you've got a million followers on social media, your performance is really sort of secondary to all that. You really are selling your name, image, and likeness. And those million followers didn't, didn't go away because you had a bad game. But if you're getting paid to play, dressed up as NIL, and you don't play well, then yeah, that's exactly the problem that you're running into. And I think that um, by the time guys are, you know, sophomores, juniors in college, they've dealt with some pressure. I don't know that this is, you know, make or break for them. And certainly not enough to sort of say, well, we got to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But the other side of it is, and you mentioned high schoolers, and this is the thing that I heard a good bit down there too, is real concern about how far this trickles down and who trickles down yeah. with it. Because if you're, you know, Scott Boris, if you're um, uh, the big time agents who are used to dealing with big time athletes and can deal with them, Drew, Drew Rosenhaus, those guys, they don't need to go talk to high school athletes. That's not, they'll come in later when those guys have already proven something. The agents and the people that are gonna surround these guys at the high school level, are the ones who don't have access to anyone higher up on the food chain. They're trying to get in early, make money while they can, and then expect to lose them to Drew Rosenhaus 10 years down the road. But some of those guys are sleazy, slimy guys, you know? Not everybody that's in this business and trying to be around <laughs> athletes has good intentions. In fact, many of them do not. And so the further down the food chain of success you go, um, I think the more risk you have, and a lot of these uh, you know, NIL deals, the idea of, of getting involved with high school players or sort of younger recruits going into college freshmen is let's cast a wide net and hope one of them pans out. Well, you know, that's fine. But what about all of the other ones who don't pan out, who you were just telling them how great they were 10 minutes ago, and now you don't return their phone calls. And look, frankly, that's life. Maybe it's a lesson everybody's got to learn at some point, but it does feel like you're putting a whole lot of, of risk into this pool for athletes who are not trained for it, who are not professionals, who are not surrounded by a team of folks looking out for their best interests and saying, all right, here you go. And, and so I think a big part of this is exactly what we started talking about earlier is that schools need to embrace uh, uh, an infrastructure system that is there to support their student athletes. And uh, in that checklist of things they need to do to support, mental health should be way up near the top. All right, David Hale, terrific stuff. Thank you for your time. Uh, I know you got lots of stuff in the pipeline about this. Look forward to reading that. And we're a month away from the ACC kickoff in Charlotte. <laughs> we don't see you before then. We'll see you there. Thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. You bet. You can read David's great work at ESPN.com. When we come back, final word on the Monday show. Packed nearly 12 years ago, some folks got married at the College World Series. Huh. At old Rosenblatt Stadium. Last week, they came back. Did you and Mrs. P have a uh, picture made when you got married at your favorite sports venue? We'll check this next. The Packer and Durham Podcast. This is the Packer and Durham Podcast. Packer and Durham, final segment on a Monday show. Appreciate all our great guests. Always entertaining, always oh, interesting, yeah. and wish Notre Dame the best tomorrow as they try to stay alive in the College World Series. You think uh, Joe Z's hit the paddleboard yet down there at Hollywood Beach? I hope he's yeah. okay. I hope he stays upright because yeah. if he falls in, again, suck at the big toe, it's <laughs> the water, you're the visiting team. That's all Vis I'm going to say. Yeah. 
Thanks to uh, Joe Zagaki, uh, the voice of the Canes. Joe Giglio, prophetic statements made during his visit on the NC State two-a-days. And, of course, David Hale a moment ago uh, from the pages of ESPN.com. Uh, almost 12 years ago, Alex and Rich Wallace were married at home plate of old Johnny Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha, August 14, 2010. Before the stadium was torn down. Now, Parity had also been at Creighton. They've got kids. They've got a history of the College World Series together. If you could pick any venue in sports to renew your vows, where would you pick? Or better still, maybe you get married in a place like Rosenblatt Stadium. Or if you're Vicky and me in 2007 pack, you get married at Northside Church in Atlanta on a Friday night before Carolina hosts Georgia Tech, and you go get your picture made inside Grant Field with the lights on, ready for play the next day. How's that? Where's Woody? Where's Woody in that picture? Is he taking the picture? (laughs) No, Woody's at the reception. We sent Woody the reception. And uh, thanks to Jeff Burt for making sure the lights were turned on on a Friday night in November. How about that? That Huh? That would, have been, that would have Woody. been a cute picture with the lights off. That, that would have been a really good – that sounds like a really good idea. <laughs> Let's go to the stadium with the lights off and get our picture taken. Oh. Woody was the smartest yeah. one in the group. He got a head start. He said, man, I, I'm going to the reception. Yeah. I'll catch you boys later. That's it. Yeah, he and TD went to the bar. Yeah. All right. Uh, have a great Monday, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow with two-a-days. Wake and pit on deck here on ACC Network. We'll see you at 7 a.m. for Packer and Durham. Have a great day. Tune into Packer and Durham weekday mornings from 7 to 10 Eastern for the best conversations about everything from the ACC. Find it on the ACC Network, Sirius XM Channel 371, and streaming on the ESPN app.